Hello, everyone. Welcome to the San Diego Screenwriter Studio. I'm your producer, co-host, Gail Stewart. Joining me today is co-host Raul Sandalin. Hello, Gail. How you doing this wonderful day? I'm doing pretty damn good. Okay, and our third musketeer, Dr. Stacy Hankinson. She went to Paris, huh? The yeah. life of a jet setter. Is that Paris, France, or Paris, California? <laughs> Not sure. I, yeah, I went to Paris, California once to a bicycle motocross yeah. meet. Um, or championship, and I was looking for the Eiffel Tower. Oh, didn't you see stop, it. Stop! 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 So listen, Raul and I have you covered today in the studio. Coming up, the movie "Blow Up My Life." It had its world premiere at the Austin Film Festival, and we have interviews with the writer directors. It was a really fun movie. We're going to review it, right? This is a really good independent film. Yeah, it I- it is. And we learn about how this writing team, Abigail and Ryan, how they were able to downsize their script to fit their budget. Important information, especially if you're a writer out there that wants to be involved in the filming of your movie. That interview coming up. But first, we want to tell you about some news. We've kind of mentioned it before, right, Raul, about uh, Cameron Crowe's new Almost Famous on Broadway. Yeah, absolutely. Um, This is a San Diego podcast, or at least we're headquartered in San Diego, so we like to talk about San Diegans. I just came from Grossmont College, where I teach, and I help put on an an annual event, the Lester Bangs Memorial Reading. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. And Lester Bangs, who was, uh, well, uh, Cameron Crowe is sort of the protege of Lester Bangs. Lester Bangs was a mentor to Cameron Crowe, and Cameron Crowe featured Lester Bangs in the movie Almost Famous. And he's in the play. Uh, Yeah, there's a character that is actually of him, too. Yeah, yeah, anyway. Every, every year I put or help put on this Lester Bangs event at Grossmont College, and that was today. We, it was a great success. We had a couple hundred people. Wow, um, good. Talked about Lester Bangs, and the of course the hot gossip off the presses is that um, Lester Bangs is featured in Almost Famous, and he's also featured in Almost Famous the musical, which sure. is just hitting Broadway. So yeah. we're starting to see the opening nights. If you remember here in San Diego, they did some pre-screenings and Mm -hmm. warm-ups at the Old Globe Mm -hmm. before COVID kind of put a damper and interruption on everything. Dang COVID. But now we're back and they are on Broadway and, you know, they've been... He's been been making the PR rounds. He was on the Jimmy Fallon show. uh, CBS this morning. Yeah, so he's kind of drumming up support for it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because Almost Famous is one of the most popular movies of all time. Well, this is the deal. Now, whether or not it plays that way on Broadway is another story, right? Okay. Yeah. And I got to tell you, some of the some of the reviews that I've read are a little iffy on that. I'm sure it's a wonderful play. Um, I want, really want to go see it. I'd like to just jet to New York and check it out, but um, I haven't had the opportunity to do it. But I got to tell you, like, just say this one review. It was written by Adrian Horton. Uh, she's with The Guardian, and this is a quote from her saying that the new Broadway version 
Almost Famous, adapted by Crow with music and lyrics by Tom Kitt, has some of the right ingredients, overall convincing performances, kinetic choreography, the sheen of nostalgia, both for the 2000 film and the 70s rock and roll. But she goes on to say that the overall chemistry is lackluster and bound to elicit more shrugs than screams. Hmm. So that's just one review on it right now. So Sure. Well, these things often take years to develop. Um, I know, right. like when Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks were developing the uh, the the producers, yeah. and they would go and they do test screenings and sit in the back, and they do hundreds of these. And one of the the lines I remember they said was that if something didn't get uh, full throated laughter from the audience. They cut it. Yeah, it's out. You know, it's if out. they just chuckled, they cut it. Right. And I but, think that that's, you know, they're testing this mm-hmm. now, right? Another from Show Score Comets, the stage musical misses every opportunity to be sharp, smart entertainment. It might have been uh, occasionally diverting, but never affecting. Ouch. You know, so, I mean, it's so hopefully they'll take some of these reviews. They'll mm-hmm. take some of these suggestions, and I'm sure they're working on it already to kind of bring it all the way around. Because it does have the great, the great backstory, and almost famous, as you said, was a great movie. So why it can't be translated onto the stage, I don't know why. Yeah, it'll be. Let, let's give it a, you know, let's give it a year. Yeah, you know, because yeah, yeah, it'll yeah. probably take something like that to ultimately work out the bug. So, right. so stay tuned. Also, Raul and I are going to be reviewing the feature film "Blow Up My Life." It's a noir comedy thriller set in the age of high-tech, big pharma. Director and writers Abigail Horton and Ryan Dickey wrote this film. It's based on the early days of the opioid crisis gripping America, right? But Ryan Dickey flips that idea and uses Blow Up My Life to tell us what it might have been like on the inside, inside big pharma. Yeah, it's great. I just watched it right before the show, right before our screening today. And yeah, it's a, I, I have a few things to say about it. Right, right. It's all coming up on the San Diego Screenwriter Studio on KNSJ, San Diego's only social justice network. You're listening to the San Diego Screenwriter Studio, and today we are talking about the new feature movie, Blow Up My Life, written and directed by Abigail Horton and Ryan Dickey. The movie had its world premiere at the Austin Film Festival just last month. And like many films, it was in the works for years, but then the pandemic nearly blew up Blow Up My Life. Smart decision-making gave them a great workaround. Stay local, think small. Yes, one of their go-to film locations was the inside of a van. Yes, a van. Blow Up My Life writer-directors Abigail Horton and Ryan Dickey. Look back at the project, which at first was kind of written in a very large scale, like an international scope almost, and it became somewhat of a joke. Um, to approach a production like that during lockdown. And so we started thinking, well, like, what, what, what if it was possible? What could we do to still retain the same story and characters, but do it um, with the resources we had at the time, which was uh, like a home base in Middletown, Connecticut, um, where we filmed everything. And, and a van. And a van. And uh, <laughs> Jason and 
a bunch of, you know, great cast and crew that um, we've worked with before and came out from New York and we potted up and filmed October 2020. Yeah, writing the script together was really like a lesson in being economical with our scenes and how many actors were in each scene and what we really needed in the script to tell the story. Um, like any draft, it starts off bigger and then you whittle it down. But what was so interesting about writing this screenplay is that we knew that we were about to make it. Um, and so we had to be very specific about what we wrote, knowing how we were going to shoot it. Well, it's not a COVID movie. It's uh, shaped by COVID in a way. Right. So I think as uh, for screenwriters who are starting out um, our listenership and they hear this, it's kind of like it's a high impact but low budget film. And mm-hmm. the fact that you were very cognizant of the costs right out of the gate when you're writing the script, right? You were you were very, very concerned about that. Yeah, I think that, you know, typically, you know, you kind of, there's like four phases of the writing process is coming up with the idea and putting it down on paper. And then you get into pre-production when you sort of see what resources you actually pull together and you got to adapt to that. And then you get on set and you start playing with the actors and things change again and you start to, you know, drill down into what's working and kind of throw away what's not. And then you get into the edit and start shaping it for the rhythm of the piece and what's best for that. Um, and it's just continually evolving to sort of um, serve the film as a whole. You know, both as directors who have written a lot of our own work, that's always been something that's been on our minds as writers is I'm going to write this, but I know I, I'm also going to shoot this. So can I actually shoot what I've written? And so that I think we've had practice with that. And so it really kind of came to its fullest um, expression in this script. So um, let's talk about the premise of the story, which is Jason uh, works for a pharmaceutical company and he makes a stupid mistake uh, and it cost him his job. And then he finds out that there's some nefarious undertakings going on by the uh, CEO of the of the corporation. Now, I think it's very relevant today, just with the whole Sackler mm-hmm. family and the opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's mm-hmm. a lot of things that are just incredibly relevant today. Did you guys intend on that? Was that intentional? Yeah, definitely intentional. Um, you know, we were kind of writing it during, you know, the time when the trial was going on for the Sacklers. So that was their bankruptcy trial. Their bank- bankruptcy trial. And this is a subject I've been interested in, um, you know, for a long time since my uh, thesis in college. It's like a documentary kind of told from the perspective of people sort of like suffering from, you know, the dependency. And now it's, we wanted to kind of shift perspectives and, and bring it into someone who's inside the system, who's kind of like waking up to their own complacency to this issue, even though maybe there's some good intentions, the system as a whole um, sort of supports selling people the disease and the cure. And I think that's not even necessarily exclusive to the pharmaceutical industry. Um, But we thought this was a really, again, a kind of good way to focus in um, that type of story. 
Welcome back to the San Diego Screenwriters Studio. We are in session. More with Blow Up My Life. Directors, writers, Abigail Horton and Ryan Dickey coming up. But now, Raul Sandalin and I are going to take this movie apart. What works, why, and noir comedy thriller, heavy subject, opioid crisis. What do you think about this movie? I have a lot to say about this, and I also have some questions, too. Um, On the surface, it was very well made, very well written. Yeah, Um, nicely shot, too. Yeah, Yeah. and I want to say something about the first ten pages, also. Sure. Screenwriters out there, you're going to hear a lot about the first 10 pages. Usually which, that's as far as a producer yeah. gets. <laughs> and that's as, that's as far as a lot of people get when they're trying to write a screenplay. But you'll hear this proverbial first 10 pages, which is basically the first 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. So you're writing what's going to happen, how you're going to lock in all the characters, all the action, all the different A, B, C, D, E, F, G stories, all in that 10 minutes. And if something isn't locked in, the, the, you know, the viewer is going to feel uncomfortable, and that may haunt them through the rest of the film. So it's very important to get that first 10 minutes, first 10 pages locked down correctly. Connecting plot points, yep. Yep. making sure that plot points are followed through with. Yeah. So what I liked about this is I did think it was quirky. I mean, it starts off, I think, funny with a guy. Uh, Jason Selvig is his name. He is the actor in it, along with Kara Young. So both of these actors are really, really good in the movie. I think it starts out and uh, it builds and you find out that, you know, he he gets canceled basically for posting that rogue video. Right? He gets fired. Yeah, yeah <laughs> he gets sure. fired and gets canceled. Nobody wants anything to do with him. He, come, he becomes kind of like kryptonite, you know. Uh, his friend doesn't want anything to do with him. You know, the friend in the business, his uh, his colleague doesn't want anything to do with him. So he really kind of gets, uh, he, he's ostracized and he has a non-compete clause too. So he can't go out and use his experience. So he becomes what, a computer technician, right? Yeah, he gets <laughs> knocked down several steps. Right. Yeah. yeah. He's living out of his van, you know, I mean, he was on top of the world and then, you know, all is lost. Okay. Battle after battle, which in the first 10 pages, I think they've kind of laid that out nicely. That's about where it ends, right? When he, we see that he's been fired from Mm -hmm. his original job and now he's got to take this sort of second hand lowly job of being a door to door IT guy. He's like the geek squad. And it sort of ends right there. Yeah, something that a 20-year-old should be doing, not a 35, 40-year-old who was once, you know, a six-digit computer program. Right. So anyhow, so but I think that this goes through kind of setting up the whole conspiracy that is going on within the pharmaceutical company where he was fired from. And they, I think they do a really good job starting with his colleague, who kind of spills the beans or he gets, he, and he, he kind of becomes nefarious in the fact that he begins stealing, right, all the files from computers. So he is a little bit kind of edgy in that regard. Well, I'm, I'm really getting the edgy side of this. One of my comments was I don't quite see the comedy. Um, mm-hmm. now, now the, the main, the lead character, he's sort of Steve Carroll, um, you he's know, in good. a way. He's, yeah, he's quirky, good. the crying in the shower <laughs> when he gets fired. You know, there, there are 
are funny moments, but overall, I'm still seeing this as a a, a thriller. Well, it's a, it's an opioid it, conspiracy, yeah. right? Uh, really, is with the big pharma. But for instance, we're watching uh, Gary, the friend, mm-hmm. the one who is sorry to see him go, and then we find out he's you know part of the whole plot. And, right. Uh, what is interesting is that Ryan Dickey says that he based it basically on the Sackler Purdue pharmaceutical opioid yes right because and it was a social it's kind of like a social statement here because you have the company that basically you know put a product on the market said it was non-addictive and non-lethal and it turns out that hundreds of thousands of people have overdosed from it now you take the movie and you put the ceo Mm. with a gun in his hand that actually ends up you know Mm. Often the offing the main the star of the show. Yeah, so no no spoiler alerts here. <laughs> yeah, I know, but, but there's a great yeah, ending. Yeah. It's a great ending, right? Um, oh, I love it. Now the truth of it is there is the there's a family called the Sackler family, an American family of billionaires. Right. That's the opioid yeah. family. And they own Purdue Pharmaceutical. Right. And but there were definitely uh politicians in Congress that helped you know, the pharmaceutical industry. And as a result, about a a half a million people died in the U.S. Absolutely. Over 20 years. Yeah, absolutely. And they continue to die every single day. So anyhow, back to the movie, though. You're taking a very deep subject. And they've thrown in some comedic uh, elements to it, which I think makes it a little bit lighter, a little bit easier to digest. And with the crew, the cast and crew of uh, Jason Selvig and... Kara Young, who she's wonderful. She's the uh, little hacker girl mm-hmm. in the... Uh, the cousin. Yeah, yeah, right? the cousin. Yeah. yeah, she's good. She plays a good... She's funny, too. She's a smart aleck, and mm-hmm. um, I like her. And she becomes his wingman as he's trying to escape these uh, these assassins that are after him. Yeah, yeah. No, the whole movie is very well acted. And mm-hmm. I, I see all the characters are very complex and have lots of, we like to use this term now, nuances to them, especially the lead. He did a really good job again kind of delivering this uh steve carroll of the office meets the opioid crisis Mm -hmm. you know it's just i didn't find myself laughing out loud i think the subject matter of it just made it real hard you know it's like laughing at a funeral even if something's a little funny you don't want to you know, break the somber mood. Yeah, no, I did. I found it funny. I thought yeah. it was the, so. That's interesting that you didn't and I did. I mean, but of course, you know, I don't know. I have a quirky sense of humor and I like comedic. Yeah, I mean, sense. And yeah. Again, the characters are very nuanced, so you're going to find a lot of different emotions and a lot of different, you know, psychological explorations. Yeah, and the relationship between Kara and Jason, the two stars in it, I find that they have a great uh, chemistry between them. <laughs> And she kind of is always like putting him in his place, you know. Mm -hmm. It's like, come on. More inside information about the great new movie, Blow Up My Life, with writers and directors Abigail Horton and Ryan Dickey. What a dynamic duo. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about your characters. Jason does a great job, and I really, really liked Kara Young's uh, portrayal of his like partner in crime. Kara's amazing and she's so funny and so charismatic and I mean they're both so charismatic and fun to watch on screen I think they both bring a lot of personality which is something that I think both Ryan and I really focus on with our characters is just like creating interesting weird idiosyncratic characters 
everyone is that everyone has personality um and so we're always looking for that in our you know when we're writing our characters and we're casting and they're both just like such unique people and play off of each other so well and they're and, you know, they're both great improvers. We just got so lucky working with both of them. When you were writing this, and there's some funny moments in here, and he's kind of a funny character in that he's mm-hmm. he's super smart, but he's a little nerdy, you know? And, it, and mm-hmm. so how did you, like, hold that line or walk that line between a really kind of a thriller and this a little bit of dark comedy that goes along with it? Yeah, um... You know, we, I'm, glad, I'm so glad that came through. We, we do like that kind of dynamic of comedy and thrills. In comedy, when you're not sure if you're supposed to quite laugh, but some people really, really laugh. <laughs> yeah, and I think that, that unpredictability helps also kind of like build tension for the thrilling parts as well. So it's a fun uh, rhythm to build between the two, and hopefully you don't know it's quite coming next. Yeah, and Jason, I think, you know, as we were writing the script for Jason, he, he plays this, like, not self-aware comedy really well. Yes. Um, where you are kind of laughing at him a little bit as he's taking himself seriously, which is really fun. Um, but, yeah, nailing the tone of this was definitely really tricky. And I think a lot of uh, the voiceovers, uh, Jason's voiceover, I think, does um, a major part in kind of holding the tone together. Yeah, the, the voiceover is interesting. So when did you, how did you decide to put that in the script? The voiceover for us was like a real part of kind of the noir vibe that we were going for, kind of this flashback structure where as you're watching most, you know, maybe 75% of the movie, you know, there's this like tone of this isn't going to go well um, over the whole thing. And I think Jason's voiceover is fun and kind of this a little bit of an unreliable narrator um, where he's, you know, talking up his experience a bit, you know, saying like amid a form of bullets in danger uh, where, you know, there were no bullets um, (laughs) in that moment. Uh, So, you know, the voiceover really does to kind of just create that tone and and give it that noir um, encasing in a way. When the film starts out, you're you're kind of looking at this guy going, is he believable or is he really in trouble or is he just... Is he just a cracker? I mean, it's just like, what the, yeah. what the heck is going on with this guy? <laughs> Tone balance where you see that things are serious. The music is queuing into things that are a bit more serious and thriller like, but then he kind of lands his first joke in, in the first minute. Um, and so that's always, a, that was a great moment to hear at our premiere too, that that comedy hit. And it's a really good first signal to the audience. Like you're allowed to laugh at this. You're allowed to laugh at Jason. Right. Um, and that was important to us. So that came pretty early. Right. Yeah, and the subject matter, you know, of like the opioid crisis and things like that is obviously very dark and very serious. And so having, again, the comedy to balance it out and to make you kind of like look a little bit at the whole situation is like absurd. And Jason's absurdities kind of like help uh, usher that in as well. We thought he was a great person to play this role um, because of his like awareness of that. So I want to go back. How hard was it to write this script? You got, you said that you had done uh, several other films before Um, this film in particular, a feature. First of all, how many pages was it? And just split up the writing. I think it came out to about 75, um, 80, somewhere around there, which the the film is 80 minutes. Um, And the writing process was really great. We would kind of write, large chunks individually and then come together and then discuss it and then pass the baton off to the other person and they would take it for a bit and then 
come back and consult, and um, it was great to build momentum in that way. Yeah, we we started with a an outline together that we rehashed, and I mean, sometimes went back to the outline on like draft three, going, okay, we need to work on the outline together again because we're writing separately, but we need to come back together and like make sure we're focusing on the beats we need to hit. Yeah, the opening scene was pretty much exactly the same as it was from the draft back in 2016, but everything else after that kind of then evolved and molded to, again, our, our circumstance. And, and, and a very different um, experience at writing Blow Up My Life because of how we were all, we're almost like working backwards from production mm-hmm. um, and looking at kind of some of the earlier draft plot points going, okay, we need to get from point A to point B, but we have too many characters. We have too many side plots, too many locations. How do we go to point A to point B with like two scenes and two characters instead? A bit of a brain scramble and a puzzle. But um, yeah. I, I think running this particular film together was super, super helpful. So we had both brains kind of on it. Right. So why did you kill off the protagonist? I still thought, I'm like, no, he can't die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a bummer, uh, for sure. But, <laughs> it's more than a bummer, Ryan. It's like, why? Because yeah, you're course. pulling for this guy. I mean, I was really pulling for him. I was, He's a good guy, and he's he had a bad break, and he was canceled. And, you know, I mean, there was a lot of good things going on with him. But to have it, he just, he, he, you just took him out. Yeah, you know, he felt like his story kind of completed in a way, and feel like, you know, there's, there's, even though the film at times has, again, sort of absurdist elements, there is a lot of realism in there. And, yeah. You know, if that situation were to kind of go down like it was, you know, that sort of confrontation at the end probably wouldn't end very well. Um, and so we felt like there was also something to, you know, sort of the metaphor that this pharmaceutical company is like killing people with their product sort of in, invisibly, you know, out in the public. But, you know. I guess, spoiler, like the CEO then kind of like actually, you know, shed blood. Um, and I felt like we that needed to come to a head and we needed to feel sort of a visceral, visceral reaction. It's almost like a metaphor in a way that I think a lot of these major corporations and pharmaceutical companies, you know, there's a lot of death that has happened. Um, and there's so many layers separating the people who run these companies with the actual deaths that occur whether it be people below them or computer screens or just, you know, uh, supply chains. And so to have the CEO actually commit this crime um, felt important to kind of bring it um, into the physical space. And so all of that was intentional for your aim at the pharmaceutical industry? Yeah. Yeah. So kind of like a, it's a social consciousness uh, film in that respect, for sure. You're having, you have it, not only is it a good film and it's fun, it's entertaining, but it also has a social message attached with it. People, at, you know, at the mercy of profit is a large theme in the world. So uh, we're definitely really interested in continuing to make films about that. Welcome back to the San Diego Screenwriter Studio. We're just about to close the door on this session. It's been kind of fruitful, right? We've talked about a lot of things on this one. Yeah, that film made me think about a lot of stuff, a lot of script writing things and techniques. They Again, they did a really good job. 
So what's coming up in San Diego, and this is kind of a, a new departure. It's actually the first annual one in San Diego. It's the San Diego Environmental Film Festival, and it offers a platform for filmmakers from around the globe to present creative ideas, talent, and skills in service to Mother Earth. We, huh? we need to be concerned with the environment. So that's it's kind of a different take on everything. And the films showcased at this annual film festival coming up November 19th in San Diego are supposed to spark your curiosity and inspire on-the-ground action by new audiences. I think this is great. I should go and check this one out. Yeah, and so this is the first annual. Yes. Right? So yeah. this is just a startup. And and you know, San Diego has tons of film festivals. I mean, we have a Veterans Film Festival, an Asian Film Festival. That just ended, yeah. Yeah. So some of the films that are going to be shown are The Witness is a Whale. Uh, that's interesting. Terra Eterna, Diving for Rays, A Story, The Herd. Flight of the Wood Stork, all kinds of stuff. And this is pre-screening of the Founders Choice Films, November 19th, 2.30. And it's going to be at UCSD, Gilman Drive, La Jolla. So this is where you should look for it. If you want to be conscious about our environment and next maybe next year, you can submit to the second annual one. But this is the first right here. And it looks like there's a good mix of documentaries and narrative films also. The San Diego Environmental Film Festival is a registered 501c3 nonprofit created to inspire and affect social change through the mediums of film, art, and storytelling. And it's going to be at UCSD yeah. running November 19th. My alma mater. Mine too. Really? You yeah. went to UCSD? Absolutely. Huh? Yeah. yeah, Tritons. Okay, there we go. You're listening to the San Diego Screenwriter Studio. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Oh, thank you.